0: Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the October 7th Hamas attack, and the bombing of Gaza, this time with Professor Steve Simon, author of Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. He also wrote The Ark, a formal structure for a Palestinian state for the Rand Corporation in 2005. Most recently, he penned an article for Foreign Affairs entitled What Comes After Hamas that will form the basis of much of our discussion. You may or may not agree with all of Steve Simon's analysis. However, I'm trying to get a multitude of different perspectives on the current crisis and what could come of it down the line. What is going to be the solution? And we'll get into that in this conversation. Like I said, you may agree or disagree with him, on a number of matters we all have our own views on these matters i'm not really a debate show guy so if you're expecting that it really isn't going to go there i feel like i want my listeners to think through what they're hearing and that my job in a lot of these interviews is to help elucidate what my guests are saying so with all that in mind Let's get right to it with Steve Simon. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with. He's a professor of practice in Middle East Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, University of Washington, and the author of the book Grand Delusion. The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and the author of a recent foreign affairs piece, which will be the sort of subject of our conversation, What Comes After Hamas? A Plan to Return the Gaza Strip to Palestinians and Keep Israel Safe from October 18th, 2023. Steve N. Simon, how are you doing today?
1: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm good. I mean, I... I as someone that covers the Middle East and what's been happening in Israel, Palestine, I wish we were speaking under better circumstances, but.
1: Likewise.
0: So if you could, uh, what spurred you to write uh, this article? What comes after Hamas? I came across it while being very interested in finding more articles that would address the question of, well, if Israel is able to eradicate or eliminate in some way, Hamas from the Gaza Strip, then what comes after that? Because I I think there's a concern that there's no exit strategy right now. At least I've seen some people say that they're worried about that. So I think this article was pretty important.
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, That's a good question. That is to say what spurred spurred me to write this. Uh, I I think, first of all, uh, I just had the sense that In any scenario short of the elimination of Hamas, the parties ultimately return uh, to the situation as it was before uh, this latest round of violence, but worse, but more or less the same as it was before. And by that, I mean um, uh, a Gaza Strip that's been blockaded, more or less. uh, ruled by um, uh, you know a fairly extreme uh, militant group uh, that has consigned the Gazans, uh, I think it's fair to say to a pretty miserable existence um, and periodic rounds of uh, um, more intense combat between Israel and and the Hamas um, uh, militants that are inside. Uh, the Gaza Strip. Now, the the this would be pretty it, it, this would be pretty awful, you know, outcome. Because when I say it will be the status quo but worse, uh, what I mean is that uh, Gazans uh, will probably no longer have uh, access to Israel for employment. Um, you know up until recently and and again there is was there has been a negotiation over this just before violence broke out uh Gazan workers can come into Israel um you know earn uh, uh earn some money and go back into Gaza so there's a back and forth um uh imports uh into Gaza were uh, restricted to some extent but uh, you know the Gazans were able to bring in enough construction material to keep you know the infrastructure of of Gaza uh, expanding, uh, really, and and people led more or less normal lives. I think uh, it in the in the back to the future scenario that would that we'd see if Hamas were not decisively defeated. That's the kind of thing we would be looking at, and uh, it's obviously. Uh, not not really great because it would um you know it would be a scenario and punctuated by uh frequent attacks probably by israel you know against targets in in Gaza without necessarily going into Gaza. We're not talking about an occupation scenario. But but Gaza will become a free fire zone. Um and uh and and that will disrupt any hope of living kind of normal lives. If you know if if you're a people who live in in gaza so oh, that's oh that's really bad um uh, that was the one thing the second thing was uh that at the time i wrote it uh the israelis looked uh very determined to go in there and uh and get rid of uh, the hamas leadership probably down to the second tier uh of of the leadership um Killing as many fighters as as they as they could or as they had to, and then finding the rocket factories, the missile factories, the munitions factories, the stockpiles of weapons and, and munitions, and finding the tunnels. Doing all of that might take a couple of months, um, uh, but anyway, once that job had been completed, then it you know of course. People sympathizing with Hamas might still exist, you know. Maybe, maybe you know, a million of them, you know, for for all I know. But the point is, there won't be a Hamas to per, pursue war uh, on their behalf, and 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 their instruments of control will have been destroyed. And that scenario would raise the question. Um, uh, necessarily of well then who runs Gaza you know under the under those circumstances because presumably once the Israelis get through with, you know what they what they want to do, should they go ahead and, and do it uh, at the end of the day um you know they're not going to want to keep it. They're going to want to hand it off. Uh, to someone. So I wanted to address the question, okay, if that's the situation, who do they hand it off to? How does that work exactly?
0: So maybe you could delve into that a little bit more. Why would Israel not want uh, Gaza? And, And who are some possible players they could hand Gaza off to? If, I mean, this is all premise, I guess first we should ask, I've had multiple guests on. I just sat James Galvin on uh from UCLA, and he's really convinced that uh, you know, they're not going to be able to eliminate Hamas entirely. Uh so do you do you did you write this thinking that they are able to eliminate Hamas? Like what, what's your view on the
1: probability for the elimination of Hamas? By elimination of Hamas, of, of Hamas the way I would uh use that term. Uh, it is, uh, a, it, it refers to a situation where whatever Hamas is there, it's incapable of governing Gaza at that point. That's what I meant when I said it's, you know, this was a little bit political science and I shouldn't have gone there. But when I, when I said that their instruments of control would be destroyed, it meant that they would no longer... Um, have the capacity to govern and enforce their rule. Okay? So um, and and also, uh, they will have lost uh, a major war uh, that they had started. So I think you know they're uh, they, they wouldn't be in a position to restore themselves. Uh, as uh, the rulers of, of Gaza. They would be uh, in a lot of trouble in that respect. They they simply wouldn't have the capacity to do it. That's how I define it, okay? So my, um, um, my intuition, I suppose, well, it's, a, it's sort of an informed judgment, let me put it that way, that if the Israelis went in there determined to achieve that objective, um, they could, and I'll I'll explain briefly wh- why I mean in, in twenty five words or less um, the Israelis have called up three hundred sixty thousand reservists, which is quite a large number considering the battle space. Um, many of those soldiers uh, will go up north uh, to deal with a contingency involving uh, Hezbollah uh, in in Lebanon, but. You know that that number of reservists combined with 170,000 or so regular troops will still leave plenty of um, of personnel, because there'll be men and women involved in this. Obviously, So I don't want to use the word manpower, but they uh, but there'll be plenty of, of of soldiers available to do this. The Israelis um, do understand that urban combat. Uh, combat operations in urban terrain is extremely challenging. And that's one of the reasons that this will be um, extremely uh, punitive, um, uh, you know, towards the towards the Palestinians, because when you're when you're an aggressor, as the Israelis would be in this case, going into a heavily built up area, um, you know, that you're going to be vulnerable and take a big. It's going to be casualty intensive. It's going to be very costly. So what you want to do is shift that cost onto your adversary. And and that's where uh, the civilian casualties are going to come in because the Israelis will be um, uh, will want to limit their own casualties and and transfer that burden uh, to the Palestinians. So if there's a sniper in a building. Well, they'll take down the building. You know, they're not going to risk casualties sending a platoon into that building or a company of soldiers. to, You know, and that that will ramify that will happen, you know, again and again on a, on a large basis. So they understand that. Um, but, you know, from their perspective, once they're in on the ground, then they really have access to, you um, uh, a much more ample body of intelligence that will enable them to root out uh, the elements of Hezbollah and, and the elements of, of Hamas and its and its assets. Uh, they'll find laptops with information. They'll have prisoners to interrogate. They'll find pocket litter. You know, they'll the the, the the and they'll be able to collect electronically much more intensively because they'll actually be on the ground. So that's. I mean, I think that's what they would they would tell you. So there are advantages to going in. And if they did it and they were serious about it and they took a couple of months, they could make it they could reduce Hamas uh, to the extent that, uh, again, they wouldn't be capable of reassertion um, of of reasserting their their control uh, over Gaza. So uh, do I think that that is achievable? Yes. If the Israelis want to pay the price and and do you think there's indicators that they don't want to pay that price, I guess, is the next question. Oh, yes, is the answer to your next question. Yes, I think that they get that. Um, I think that they're concerned about escalation and widening of the war. And they're concerned about losing American political cover. Diplomatic cover. Uh, which um, uh, the Israelis understand they need in order to prosecute whatever combat plans they have in mind. So, um, you know, they understand that there's a sweet spot on the timeline, essentially. Um, And, and that once they're on the other side of that sweet spot, whether it's, two weeks or a month or five minutes. um, They're going to come under uh, uh, serious pressure, uh, particularly from the United States, to wind things up. The on on escalation and and widening of the war, uh, nobody wants that. I mean, really, Iran doesn't really want it. Hezbollah doesn't really want it. And the Israelis certainly don't want it, because if it actually occurred, the, Israel, in the opening hours of the conflict, would take a serious beating because Hezbollah has this enormous uh, rocket and missile inventory, and if they unleashed it on Israel, uh, it would be highly destructive. The Israelis are already evacuating uh, towns and, 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 and villages along the northern border, including a fairly major city called Kiryat Shmona, so um you know, they, they want to avoid that. They really do.
0: If you could, uh, because I know some people are only listening to the audio version of this. I know you said you were talking about relatively relative normalcy in Gaza. I don't, I don't want people to get the wrong impression because I, I saying normalcy in Gaza is different than saying normalcy, I think in anywhere else in the world. It's not, uh, I don't want people to get the impression that you're saying it's you know, great in Gaza before October 7th and
1: before this bombing campaign.
0: I, I was going to say, can you talk a little bit about the conditions in Gaza
1: for people that may be unfamiliar with it? Um, well, the conditions in Gaza right now are are appalling. Um, there's been a large population transfer within Gaza from the northern part of of that territory to the southern part, perhaps a half a million people yeah right. I was
0: reading uh like seven hundred fifty thousand have have fled to the south of Gaza, but
1: perhaps perhaps that many. I'm being conservative. so you know, a large a large number, okay, perhaps a quarter to a third of of uh, the Gazan population has been on the move um and and it's been on the move under fire. so uh, it's it's the worst of of both worlds and and well actually they've been on the move. But they've been under fire and they've not had food or water. So um, the the conditions uh, are really are really awful and those that are in southern Gaza they're still you know under attack. The Israelis are bombing uh, Khan Yunis, which is the big. A city down in, in in southern Gaza. So that's uh, that's pretty bad and it hasn't been alleviated yet really uh, by the opening of the humanitarian corridor uh, in the south uh, and um, and the and the first two convoys uh, that have come in with uh, you know humanitarian uh, aid for the for the Gazans before the war, you know, it's easy to forget because Gaza is in in some ways, you know, metaphorically referred to as an open-air prison and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. People lived their lives. You know, they went to work, they made money one way or another, they raised families, kids went to school. Um, you know, all that was all that was going on. So it 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 wasn't as though um I don't. I don't know. I don't. I, I lack the vocabulary, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't. You know, god awful. I mean, people. People were living their lives, but that's. But that's not true now. And of course, many people are losing their lives.
0: So then, in terms of what Israel could do if Hamas is overthrown, who would they pass this off to? Would this involve? the united nations are we talking about a boss and the palestinian authority maybe you could elaborate on that
1: yeah sure um am happy to uh, uh look I, I, you know it's 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 really awful to, to start off an answer to a question by by saying well you know it's complicated um but it is complicated uh and it's complicated for a few reasons um uh you know, it, but perhaps not in a theory so much, but in, in in practice, the way it would have to work, um, from my you know from perspective, both in given my government experience and you sort of what I've learned as a, a kind of an academic, um, that the handoff of responsibility would have to be authorized by the UN. In other words, um, no cluster of countries. Or even any given country is going to uh, uh, take responsibility for the situation in Gaza without a UN Security Council resolution that authorizes it. So I think that has to happen. That in itself is complicated because um, uh, the Russians and Chinese might not go along with that, in which case you don't have a resolution because they have a veto in the UN Security Council. Uh, if on the other hand, um, it's it, it's an Arab state or a collection of Arab states, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, for example, who request a resolution from the UN Security Council. Then I think it's harder for the Chinese and Russians to say no. If if the resolution does pass, it will have to be what's called a Chapter Seven resolution referring to chapter 7 of the un charter and and that would um that kind of a resolution entitles the um the countries that are carrying out the mandate of the united nations uh to use force in self defense you know if they if it comes to that so they they need to know that those countries need to know that their their people could defend themselves against attack so it's got to be- be a Chapter 7 resolution. The Israelis are going to be very unhappy about that because the Israelis um, are very suspicious of the UN. The UN and Israel have been at odds for decades and decades. Um, There's no love lost uh, between them. But there's a way out of that problem because A mission authorized by the UN doesn't have to be carried out by the UN. So, in theory, interested countries could get together and acquire um, a kind of a stewardship arrangement over Gaza that would be conceived of as temporary and 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 ideally would be. Um, and they would have the, the backing of the UN and the UN authorization. They would have equipment that the UN could supply, everything from armored vehicles to laptop computers. The UN's got all of that. No, no one's gotta buy anything. And and those countries could administer Gaza until Gaza could be returned in the fullness of time, hopefully sooner rather than later, to Palestinian control. Uh, that in turn creates another set of requirements. I said it was complicated um, because if you're an Arab state who's being asked to, um, you know, contribute to this complicated and challenging endeavor, um, you're not going to want to do it. You just won't, won't want to do it at, at all unless it's clearly going to lead to Palestinian, ultimately to Palestinian reassertion of control over over Gaza, because no Arab state would want to be complicit in any other arrangement, and 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 I can fully understand why that's the case. So, you'd have to have a a, a Palestinian authority that has the capacity and the legitimacy to exercise um, uh, control over uh, over Gaza. That is to say. To whom the cluster group, to whom this group of, uh, to whom this group of um, countries can hand off Gaza, they'd have to they'd have to have the street cred to be able to do that. Okay, and that requires two things. One, there is there needs to be Palestinian elections. There haven't been elections since two thousand and six. The current Palestinian Authority government doesn't have a lot of credibility, Um, uh, 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 you know, within Palestine, among among Palestinians. That's a serious problem that has to be dealt with. But secondly, relatedly, and even more complicatedly, that Palestinian Authority will have no juice it won't have, you know, any any prospect of success unless it's perceived by Palestinians and and Arab states outside of, um, uh, you know, the immediate boundaries of Palestine. It won't succeed unless that government has wrung some concessions out of the Israelis on issues that are of tremendous importance to Palestinians. In other words, that Palestinian authority has got to show that it can deliver the kinds of things that engender legitimacy and credibility. That gets us to the last complicating point, which is, would the Israelis play ball? Would they go along with this if it meant that they could really get Gaza off their back and and have a more sustainable situation in Gaza that didn't threaten Israeli security in the way that it clearly does now. And it certainly did on October 7th. Would the Israelis do that? Uh, I think it depends um, on a couple of things. Um if you don't mind me continuing, just no, for no, minute. no,
0: no. Go on. I I want my listeners to take this, and that's why I'm not interrupting.
1: Okay, so um, there are there are two broad uh, considerations, and these and these two considerations with respect to Israel are linked. Okay, uh, the one is after this crisis, what does the Israeli government look like? Uh, right now, it's uh, uh, as we as we all, you know, appreciate it's a it's a very far right government. Now they have a war cabinet now that's includes members of other parties, but the coalition heretofore has been, you know, uh, well, well, since November of last year, has been a really hard right and would never accept the kinds of the need for the kinds of concessions to the Palestinians that we've just talked about but after the war um uh, once the fighting dies down uh the current prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu will likely be out of office because he's widely reviled now for having created the conditions in 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 the view of the Israeli public for um uh, for the Hamas assault of October 7 and the inability of Israel to respond um Uh, adequately and in a timely way uh, to the attack. So he's in a lot of political trouble. He's likely to be gone. So then the question is, in terms of Israeli politics, what does the right in Israel do to form a new government? Does it reach out to the far right, as Netanyahu did? Right, the parties like... uh the Jewish power
0: party that Itamar Ben-Geber was involved in, Religious Zionist Party, does he reach out to them? Yeah. Precisely.
1: Precisely. To, so do they reach out to Utsmay Udib, you know, that party you referred to, and those, you know, those super right-wingers? Or do they say, you know, something at this point, we better reach out to the center to form a coalition? Now, that was um, a course of action that Prime Minister Netanyahu um, disdained because he felt that it would expose him to legal liability that he was trying to avoid for charges that have been brought against him for corruption. Um, Once he's out of the picture, um, that's no longer a factor. So it is conceivable that the right will reach out to the center. If it does, then I think there's a chance here uh, for Israel to... um, Accept uh, some of these, some of these negotiations, uh, some of these uh, concessions uh, to you, the Palestinians. You cut out there for and a then, second. And you said there's an uh, the issue of the U.S.
0: You said there was a uh, possibility to accept these negotiations. Then it cut
1: out briefly. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, there's if if the if the Israeli right reaches out to the center to form a post-conflict government then I think uh, there's uh, at least a chance uh, for the kinds of concessions that would be required, the kinds of Israeli concessions to the Palestinians that would be required. Now, the second factor, just to close the, uh, the loop here, is uh, Saudi Arabia and normalization with Israel. On the cusp of uh, the current crisis, Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia were in intense negotiations over normalization of relations. Uh, And this was regarded as a really big thing and a really big uh, triumph for American diplomacy as well. Um, And and people put a lot of stock in it. There were problems with it as well, but that's not what we're here to talk about. It's just there was this process. And among other things, this process created a direct line of communication between the Saudis and the Israelis, a public line of communication, an exchange of, of officials and visitors and so forth that had never um, been the case. So that opens up a new channel of communication. Secondly, um if if the Saudis are going to be involved in any arrangement. Uh, for the transfer of control over Gaza from Israel to a third party, and again, I think they have to be involved, then then the Saudis will constitute an important source of pressure and influence on the Israelis. And to the extent that the Israelis want normalization with Saudi Arabia, um, they'll be paying attention. To what the Saudis, you know, are saying, so that will be another positive factor potentially uh, in in a post-conflict uh, period. So, do I think it's hopeless? No, I, I don't really. I think this is, you know, it's a it's it's a plausible way out. But there are a lot of moving parts, and uh, you know, plenty of uh, uh, it slip- sounds like this could go in a lot of different directions right now.
0: You know, we we should have. It's not hopeless, but we also, I guess, have to be wary of being um, Pollyannish about it.
1: Oh yeah, and um, uh, as uh, as my colleagues, uh, you know, will tell you, I'm probably the least Pollyannish person on the planet. Um, you know, I'm, I tend to be very cynical uh, about these things, and in the article in which I. Discuss this, and which you you mentioned earlier, um, came as a bit of a surprise um, uh, to my to my colleagues. So yes, um, we don't we don't really need uh, 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 Pollyannas, and and there are many ways in which this can go south, really badly. And the most likely outcome is the one that I that that I described earlier as status quo minus or status quo worse.
0: Before we close out, do we could you talk about the precedents that you mentioned uh, in your article? I guess you talk about the 1999 UN Security Council resolution uh, involving Kosovo. Could you speak to
1: that? The key thing um, about that, uh, from the point of view of my argument, was that uh, it was NATO that carried out the mission, not the UN. Now, I, I don't see NATO getting involved in this. Gaza thing, but it was a a good example of how the UN could authorize a mission and the mission could then be carried out by organizations or countries um, and not operating under a UN mandate, but it wouldn't be the UN itself that would be running things.
0: Just a few more brief questions if you have the time. Um, I've been asking a lot of different voices and this specific question. so i've I've asked this to James Gelvin, Stephen Walt, and a number of others. Uh, has there been an issue with arguably kicking the can down the road um on the Israel- Palestine issue that has led to this point, whether it be with u s. foreign policy or whether it be with Israeli policy or just uh with um you know groups like the Palestinian Authority? I mean, is there an issue with uh putting this on the back burner constantly?
1: so okay um you know the parties in this case you know they have agency so um and in the us which is sort of the principal sponsor of uh, you know various peace process initiatives over the years um Uh, has to take into account the agency exercised by the, you know, by the by the parties. Israel's uh, society uh, and its politics have shifted um, uh, to the right uh, for a long time. Uh, And, uh, you know, the events of the mid 90s uh, propelled them um, uh, uh, even more rightward and less inclined uh, to make the kinds of concessions uh, to uh, what the Palestinians are seeking in, in, in a peace agreement they just uh, they're just less inclined to do it and there are a lot of reasons but you know we're talking about a kind of a a, a, a large-scale evolution of of Israeli uh, attitudes over the course of a couple of decades. In the meantime you've seen in a way a similar um, uh, trend in, um, uh, among the Palestinians, that's been complicated uh, by malgovernance uh, and and occupation, uh, both. So, um, you know, the parties, given these given these conditions, you simply haven't been able to enter the same trade space. Just they're too far apart. So. Yes, um, I suppose the United States could be accused of kicking the can down the road, but there's the, all the United States can do as a practical matter is take the can and put it between the parties and say, this is the can, deal with it. and And here's some suggestions. But it's not the United States that kicks the can down the road. In fact, one of the notable attributes of American Middle East policy over the years has been that it refuses to kick the can down the road. And and therefore, each of these endeavors uh, turns out to have failed. In terms of the
0: broader issue of the Israel-Palestine I know people argue over what, what to call it. They're, they're, I know pro-Palestinians that will get very upset when I call it a conflict. There's people that will say you should call it the question or the problem. Whatever we want to call this, what do you think the biggest misunderstanding uh, people have about Israel-Palestine is?
1: Look, I think people have a hard time thinking uh, in, in historical terms because it's a long history and it's complicated and and how many people realistically are going to focus on that. But the history is really important because there's such a thing uh, as path dependencies. Okay. So with, with every decision taken by the parties to the conflict, another door is closed. Okay. The pathway narrows. And this is a feature of um uh you know of uh, this is a feature of many domains of 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 life and business and statecraft and so forth and the path dependencies are cruel because decisions taken by individuals and governments or 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 corporate boards or what have you whatever the context um Two years ago, five years ago, or twenty years ago, have shaped your options in the moment. So uh, I think you know if there's a misunderstanding, it's it it pertains to the very narrow trade space to which the parties are now uh, confined by virtue of decisions taken, you know, by players long ago. And it's possible that what the two parties want at this point um, are uh, irreconcilable. I do think, however, um, I'm putting on my Pollyanna bonnet um, now, my Pollyanna pinafore, um, uh, to say that it's, I think it is a good thing uh, that the Biden administration has raised the two-state solution again in this context. Because one of the characteristics of this, you know, this dynamic, whatever you want to call it, uh, over the course of years is that Israelis and Arabs fight, at least since 1973, without a political objective. And, you know, wars can be useful if I can I dare say that, if they're geared to political objectives that resolve pre-existing or underlying problems. So I think what the Biden administration is saying here is, um, uh, uh, let's not waste this crisis. You know, let's impart a political objective to this horrible fight that's now going on. And that political objective in the administration's view, can only be a two state solution and a return to serious negotiations with the Palestinians. So, um, you know, so if there's a a misunderstanding, it's how difficult uh, perhaps that will that will be. But at the same time, how necessary it still is.
0: Ultimately, I feel like what you're saying is that at the end of the day, when we talk about Israel, Palestine and the question of it, at some point there will need to be a political solution
1: that's the only real way out yeah yeah and 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 that means the parties have to get over the question of original sin um so for the palestinians you know um israel committed the uh, the original sin by uh arriving by 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 arriving from europe many years ago um uh to farm and do other things in palestine and then after World War Two, um, you know, come in in a big way and 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 get and establish a state. That's, you know, that's original sin uh, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, and for the Israelis, the Palestinians' original sin is that um, uh, Arabs tried to throttle uh, the new um, Jewish state in its crib um, in in 1948. So they they're both looking at each other like. You know, you started it and, you know, I'm going to
0: end it. Uh, right, right. You have one side that will talk about the NAPPA, and then you have another side that will talk about its
1: grievances. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, that that kind of stuff uh, needs to be uh, relegated to the background. And it's only strong leadership on the Palestinian and Israeli sides, both that, um that can do that, which is why you need a new government in the Palestinian Authority that maybe exercises some real, uh, you know, influence, uh, over, over their voters. And the same thing, uh, of course needs to happen, uh, on the Israeli side. We'll see.
0: Last question I had for you. Uh, you know, I, maybe we can talk about it some other time, but, uh, I'm really enjoying your book, uh, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. That came out from Penguin Random House in April, 2023. Uh, Do you think that book is uh, worth looking into for for people that are just uh, becoming interested in the Middle East because of all of this? And how would you relate the thesis of that book and uh, its conclusions to what's
1: happening now, if at all? Yeah, so um – uh, it, readers of the book will find that um, uh, although I cover as part of the, the larger story, the U.S. Um, uh, organized peace process between Israelis and, and Palestinians over the years, I tend to be uh, dismisses, dismissive of it. Um, and they might be interested in the reasons uh, why. Um, uh, and and the reasons uh, why the United States has has been so keen to try to get something going uh, uh, diplomatically between Israelis and Palestinians. I won't, you know, foreshadow that argument. You've heard a little bit of it uh, in our conversation now, but I think on the on the current um, with respect to the current crisis, uh, that's an important uh, part of the book. this The second is the way in which the United States, the way in which I um, I explain the way that the United States relates to Israel, and um, I, I think you're seeing, you know, that play out uh, again uh, as as the book would have anticipated uh, in the current crisis. So for for insight into the U.S.-Israeli relationship, I think the book is is probably going to be useful uh, to readers.
0: Is there anything you could say? Like what is the main point you want people to take away when it comes to the US-Israel relationship? And then I, I promise
1: let you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, well, the US relationship, I'll just say, has uh, uh has evolved considerably over time. Uh it seems like it's unchanging, but it's it's not. And um uh, let me uh let me put it this way. Um the the US-Israeli relationship was initially based on uh, the liberal values that regulated politics and political thinking um, really uh, until the the end of the Carter administration. So um, and certainly initially, and you know, under uh you know, under Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, um, you know, especially, there was a real American attraction. To the way Israelis had organized their society, and um, you know its, its liberal set of laws, and and so forth, uh, and and there was uh, you know admiration for Israel as a uh, kind of as a pioneering kind of frontier society. Well, during Reagan, that all changed. Um, the The basis of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, uh, changed uh, for official Washington. It focused on um, strategic interest because there was a Cold War. And the United States um, uh, wanted to uh, show that it had powerful friends in the region during the Cold War. And it wanted uh, some assurance of Israeli assistance uh, in the event that um, there was a U.S.-Soviet war um, and Uh, And the United States fleet in the Mediterranean needed a place to bunker and shelter, and and we needed to use Israeli air bases and so forth. And there was a debate in Israel at that time about whether it was a good idea um, to move in that direction, because critics said, well, listen, if you have a relationship based on strategic interest, that's great, but suppose the other guy's strategic interests change then you're you're just swinging in the breeze. Um, so it's better just to stick with a relationship based on shared values. But of course, also in that moment, values in the United States and and Israel began to evolve in ways that complicated. Um, uh, you know you know all that. Um, and 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 Israel began to change quite markedly. Uh, you know, beginning in the 1990s with the assassination of Prime Minister um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin by uh, Yigal
0: Emer. and then of course you had things like the Baruch Goldstein massacre. I mean, things things have been progressively moving towards the right, and I would say the far right in Israel.
1: Yes, for uh, for sure, and the far right has deep roots. You know, in, in uh, going back to the nineteen thirties, in in the you know Palestine under British rule, I mean, there was a lot of speculation along the lines that has informed and shaped the views of the ultra right now. So this is not kind of a new thing. Um, this is this has this has deep roots, and which is why it, it can't really be disregarded.
0: I want to thank you again Stephen Simon for coming on Parallax Views. Uh how can my listeners keep up with your work?
1: Um anything you want to plug? Well, I'm on a, I'm, I'm at work on a new book. Uh it's a Global History of the War on Terror. Um so uh, uh so uh, uh look at that, look for that. Otherwise, um I don't re- I don't have a website. Um I'm, I'm too grumpy. <laughs> so uh so that's about it. Well, thank you
0: for uh, not being grumpy when it came to coming on this show. I really appreciate it. No, it was
1: great. It was a lot of fun. I hope we do it again.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Steve Simon. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash... Parallax Views. One more time that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said Until next time you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Parallax Views with Parallax Views
1: The way out is not easy to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control. But it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that... Uh,